the difficult part is the fact that you've got to be there and support you. You know, I know there are times when you feel guilty that you're causing such uh, pain for your family. That in itself, you know, is problematic. But despite everything, Hugo, this journey, I think, has transformed who we all are. Certainly, it's transformed who I am as a father and how I, how I look at the world. Hello and welcome to the 25 Stay Alive podcast, an inspiring, real and raw conversation with Hugo and Willie, two army mates and cancer survivors who are passionate in helping the lives of other young men and women. Welcome everyone and thanks for tuning in for another installment of the 25 Stay Alive podcast. I'm Hugo and this week I'm not joined by Willie. Willie's currently in Sydney doing a very exciting new project, and I can't really say much more than that. But instead of Willie, I've got a very special guest with me today and someone who's very close to my heart. So without further ado, I'm very proud to welcome to the show my dad. Thanks, Hugo. Uh, I'm really looking forward to to this, uh, or Doogie, as I call you. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's been quite a journey and uh, lots to talk about. And uh, why do you call me Doogie, Dad? Uh, Well, you know, it was little Hugo, Dugo, Doogie. You know, your older sister is uh, Amelia for some reason. She got called Schnooky as a baby. Um, So, you know, Schnooky and Doogie and and your poor old twin brother, uh, Max, uh, whose full name is Maxwell. His term of endearment is Maxwell. Maxwell. No, he, he missed out on a warm, cuddly nickname, sadly. <laughs> I do love that. So for those listening who didn't tune into the second episode of this podcast, which was my story, uh, titled One Nut Half a Gut, I strongly encourage that you pause now and just go back and listen to that episode first before listening to this episode, because I do talk about my cancer journey from my perspective, and it will provide overview and insight into what we're going to talk about today which is hearing from my dad and hearing his perspective on what it's like as a father to watch your son go through what I went through and almost like a behind the scenes on what he experienced as well. So on that, dad, let's go right back to 2013, the 18th of June, when I called you up to wish you happy birthday. Yeah, look, that was a, a, obviously it was my birthday. So I remember it extremely well. And, um, rang me a bitterly cold morning and you rang me to wish me happy birthday and we had all the normal pleasantries and and you said oh yeah I've just got this little you know lump I you know found in my testicle I said and I said well shit you really need to get anything like that go and get it checked out you know don't stuff around and off off you went neither of us really thinking uh, anything much more about it and from there I had those follow-up scans and test results which unfortunately showed that I had testicular cancer but what was it like being a father when only three days after telling you I had this lump of my testicle, calling you up 21 years of age saying, dad, I've just been told I've got testicular cancer. That dreaded C word for the first time. You're instantly going to Dr. Google mode and search, you know, research everything you can on it. And you inform me, oh, they, they want to do the operation to, to remove the testicle. And they're going to do that on the, on the following Monday. Yeah. It's like, oh. Gee, and so straight away, you, everything's whirling through my mind and, you know, you're stuck in Canberra and I'm in Adelaide. So, you know, I flew over. Um, I remember we went and ch- checked into a you know pretty daggy uh, hotel, shared a room with a twin twin beds and 
I think we were downloading episodes of Soprano or something like that to yeah, try and, having, you know. Having Thai food for dinner and watching Sopranos. Yeah, that's right. So just <laughs> taking your mind off it. And then, and then the operation on Monday, and you know, you go through a, a lot of research and for both of us, we're trying to encourage, you know, say, well, it's all fine because, you know, it's a very routine operation and, you know, they, they'll put a prosthetic in. But it's still that nervous moment when you get, you know, we go to the hospital and they kind of say to me, well, see you later. Um, You know, he'll be in recovery in, you know, later that sort of, uh, later that day or later that, you know, in a few hours time. So, you know, I'm driving around a, you know, shopping centre aimlessly, you know, trying to find something to do. Uh, And then ultimately you sort of come back and you're post-op and I've seen you unfortunately several times in that post-operative blur that you're kind of groggy and out of it. And there there was a funny moment when we were in, in Canberra in the hospital, the doctor, the surgeon was coming in uh, a day later to just give you a bit of a checkup, and he, you know, he sat down on his on the chair and he asked you to stand up in front of him and hoik up your uh, your gown, and, uh, and he's got his reading glasses perched on the end of his nose, and he leans over and he and he grabs the testicle, which has now got the prosthetic in, and gives it a, a decent squeeze, and, and, <laughs> and you jump like you've been bloody you know scalded, and he looks up in absolute surprise and said, "Shit, did that hurt?" And you said, no, it didn't, it didn't <laughs> but it should have. Because <laughs> yeah. it's not every day you'd, as a bloke, expect a, another bloke to come up and just give you a big squeeze on the old bloody testicle. And, and, and you can't feel a thing. <laughs> can't feel a thing. And it's, it's funny now, that is my, uh, my kind of infamous party trick now. If I've um, had, uh, had too many drinks, I might get it out just to kind of raise awareness. Yeah, we, we don't, we, we, yeah, well, we don't need to go there. But so, you know, again, we thought that was it. And, um, you know, you went, back, uh, you went back to finish off, you know, within a couple of weeks, you were back at uh, full training. And that was the last six months of Duntroon, probably the, the most heavy training that you went through. Mm. Some amazing endurance events. They kept you awake for one stage, I think, for four consecutive nights in a row and, and put you through enormous physical and mental challenges to achieve that point where you were graduating as an officer later that year. And there was you know, no prouder moment for us as a family. You, know, you had your parents and your grandparents and brother was, twin brother was there and you know, I think Kugs, you know, you'd already had some news uh, the week before that probably neither of us wanted to hear. Yeah, and it was such a proud moment having having you all there, having mum there, having yourself there, and you know, having Max there. And but because the cancer had spread, I unfortunately had to commence some pretty intensive chemotherapy uh, not long after the graduation. It was literally six days. From, um, yeah, well, you graduated in. You graduated. They said you can graduate with your with your uh, classmates, so you got your commission. You know, you were officially a lieutenant, um, which is a proud moment. And you've got this amazing conflict sitting there, absolutely. You know, in, in the Canberra sunshine, heart swelling in pride, seeing you as an officer, throwing your hat in the air and doing all those sorts of things, and then going through you know the ball that night you know you get the formal your pips put on your shoulder as an officer and the speeches and but then in the back of your mind thinking well hang on we go back to Adelaide on Sunday and you start chemo on the Monday yeah exactly so it was a bit of a different career path for a young lieutenant than most uh, commencing that chemotherapy so soon after graduating and I remember it wasn't actually long until my hair started falling out from the chemo and it started falling out. It was New Year's Eve and I said, all right, let's do this. And there's actually a picture of Max uh, shaving my head and he did the honours and got rid of all the hair 
And uh, basically, yeah, we, I got the uh, got the bald noggin on display. <laughs> yeah, and that and that was confronting. You know, we're all trying to put on a very cheery, happy face, but that mm. was still a very, very confronting thing. You know, we we had Christmas. You know, this was New Year, and we're all trying to be positive uh, for you, naturally. But shit, it was. You know, it is one of those journeys where you feel the sense of obligation to try and keep your spirits up and and. You know, as the journey unfolds, the listeners will hear, you know, this goes on, you know, several more times. But I remember, you know, it was just little things. You know, I would get up early in the morning because I wanted to be there when you woke up in hospital. And I'd, I'd go and make the green smoothie that, you know, I still make today and be there as you woke up. That was kind of something I wanted to do. I'd go to work and your mum would come in and then I'd come up after work and stay into the evening and watch a bit of TV. And so uh, do you recall how often you went, how many times you went into for that chemo? So I'd go in for a week. So it was Monday, Friday. I'd go in for a week and I had the chemo uh, intravenously inserted. If you um, listen to the last episode with Dahlia, she had a what's called an infuser port, which unfortunately I didn't have an infuser port, which looking back and I really should have because my veins end up getting smashed so so severely that they all end up collapsing. And I don't know if you remember, Dad, but you'd they kept having to pull it out and they'd put it in a new vein and they'd find some new yeah. to put the chemo in because it was just all my veins were collapsing. And um, so I'd go in for a week have two weeks off resting at home. Then I'd go in for another week and two weeks off. So I did that for about four months all up. You know, you were the the stereotypical cancer chemo patient. You know, you, would, you were obviously bald. You were very pale. Um, you know, as you said, all your veins had collapsed. So you look, you look like a bit like a pin needle. You know, you'd lost a lot of weight. You know, your eyes were all dark and hollow. And, and you weren't that bright, beautiful boy that, that we had as a, a son who just graduated as an officer only a few short months ago. So it was our job to try and, again, not get disheartened around you. We always had to be that positivity. And when you finished chemo, once again, we thought, oh, thank goodness, that's it. There won't be anything else now. You know, the doctor says it's highly unlikely anything else will happen. But of course, as we know, something did. We almost counted down, you know, it's your last last bloody chemo, your last week and you go in there and it's your last couple of days and you're so kind of almost looking forward to that. And then I had that follow-up bloody CT scan, which, which is meant to show that there's no enlarged lymph nodes. Unfortunately, it came back and there were still signs of enlarged lymph nodes. And they said, all right, well, unfortunately, you've just finished your uh, four months of chemo, but we've got to take out all your lymph nodes in a pretty bloody full operation. Yeah. And, and, you know, once again, you know, Dr. Google comes into play and you, and you look up, you know, retroperioneutal lymph node dissection and you you know you make the mistake of going onto YouTube, <laughs> and you watch you watch a sort of a six hour operation condensed into six minutes, and without putting the listeners off their their breakfast or their uh, their evening meal, you know effectively they slice Hugo from the 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 tip of the basically your breastbone down to your pubic bone, they clamp open the stomach, they then effectively scoop out all of the organs and. It sounds crazy, but they literally wrap those organs connected by the various tissues and you know, tubes and things. They wrap the tissues in a wet towel <laughs> and basically place them on his shoulder. They then have exposed the complete back of the cavity um, where the lymph nodes are, and they do this extraordinarily fine precision surgery, vascular surgery, to remove every one of the 38 lymph nodes. And then, of course, they have to put all the, the organs back and putting all the organs back looks like, 
you're trying to pack a sleeping bag. It never quite goes all back properly mm. um, and never as neat. And <laughs> then by the time they've then stitched it up, in fact, they staple it, don't they, Hugo? They yeah, staple they stapled them. mine up, yeah. And there's all, it's all lumpy and, and distorted and blue. And, of course, this is such a serious operation. There's only a few of them done each year. Uh, it, it results in a time in intensive intensive care. That was a huge surgery and I was so anxious for it. <laughs> probably, like you said, looking at YouTube, probably wasn't the smartest smartest no. thing I've done, but it's um, at least I knew what he was doing. But to the surgeon's credit, he did an amazing job and I woke up without any of those complications that you can often get, 50% chance of you know bowel blockages and retrograde ejaculation, all sorts of stuff like that. I woke up eight hours later, albeit, in a... Uh, in ICU and the next, I think it was, how long was it? Probably a week or so in ICU? Yeah. I think you're actually a bit longer than that. And, and of course, we were there pretty much the whole time because it is such a traumatic um, place. They don't like family in ICU because obviously infection and they're, they're all open tight wards. So they have this most dreadful, dreadful little waiting room. And, you know, you were out of it a lot, of course. They dope you up pretty heavily. You had the uh, morphine pump. You were giving the maximum number of pumps that you could. Yeah. But the drama, of course, was when you had the, um, what was it called, the spinal? Um, oh, the epidural. Epidural. And, and, and that was a drama, once again. Yeah, that was not a fun time. And for those listening, epidural, and for those who have had a C-section would know what I'm talking about, is essentially a needle which inserts into your spine, which numbs your entire front. It's like the ultimate pain relief. But there is that small percentage of people that don't, they don't show any positive effect to the actual pain relief. So they injected that into me and the pain was so immense um, that it just wasn't working. So there was like a transition period where I actually wasn't on any pain relief. And you've got a picture that I've just had an eight-hour operation. They've ripped my whole bloody stomach open. They've played around with my bowels for eight hours. And there was probably a good hour where I wasn't on any pain relief. It was, it was, it was so stressful because, you know, you, you were in so much pain. I remember a, a doctor saying to you, well, you know, out of 10, what's your pain? And you said, oh, I think it's probably probably a nine. And I turned around, you know, and I said, you know, for fuck's sake, surely it's a 10. And you said, well, if I was being burnt alive, that's probably a 10. <laughs> that probably, that probably um, would take the cake. <laughs> and, you know, I, I said, Jesus, you know, why do you, how, how on earth do you think like that in a, in a time of this when you're in so much pain? But it's very, very distressing as a parent to see a, a child in pain, as, as all parents would know. And there's nothing you can do. You know, I'm a business person, you know, I'm very smart on a range of subjects, but I'm not a doctor. And I feel, you know, very much out of my depth when there is nothing that you can actually do. Mm. Um, so to see you, you know, finally get the that in the right position and get the right painkillers and eventually you move to a ward and we sort of got to get you moving again and that whole process of being there, arriving every morning, being cheerful, get you to have a sip of your smoothie and getting you slowly walking and coming back at the end of the day and your mum's been there and, you know, sitting outside getting a bit of sun and slowly but surely getting you to a point where, you know, you are able to be discharged and once again as parents you think oh what a bloody journey that was fortunately you know the 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 army was outstanding defense force was outstanding you were given a posting in adelaide you were able to go to work you know you're on full sick leave and you're able to get to work in an adelaide-based barracks which was great for the family situation you were getting back into it life was good and and then there was a an interim before the bowel cancer dramas you you even had to go through a bloody appendix scare I actually forgot about that with everything that's going on. I actually literally forgot about it, but that was yeah, um, that was Anzac Day, 
yeah, started experiencing this pain. I'm so, oh no, what's happening now? And it ended up being that my uh, appendix was burst. So <laughs> that was also yeah, good. Yeah, but, but that if, even that was a drama, Hugo, because you, you were suffering agony. They said, I think we think it's a burst appendix. They wish you into emergency. They touch the area where your appendix should be, and they go, "Well, it's not appendicitis. We, they're, they're, you know, you're not in pain there. So it, we don't know what's happening." So a day goes by, another doctor comes in, and they finally go and track down the, the guy that did your major retroperitoneal lymph node dissection, and he said, "Well, it may have shifted." And oh, at this yeah. stage, you're once again in agony. So rather than doing the, the delicate little keyhole to remove the appendix, you know, they've sliced you down your scar, pulled out this diseased appendix which was about to burst and go you know going toxic and again probably in the nick of time but in the meantime they've cut you open down the middle they've emergency operated down the existing scar they've stapled you up again you know it started to look a bit bloody disastrous that uh, that stomach of yours (laughs) you know I, i always laugh about that though when you um when you talk about how I think I've been opened up about six or so times now. And you're like, it would have been bloody easier from the out the first surgery if they just put a bloody zipper down your front and they can just keep opening it up. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you don't think like that. <laughs> but, you know, once again, that was, you know, a, a serious operation. Once that had healed up and you're back into your full active duty, all of when you were in your army gear, particularly with your big utility and the belts, and it was all sort of like dragging, you then got the defence force. Again, remarkably how consistently wonderful they are they agreed to have um, a plastic surgeon operate you to do this uh, beautiful, delicate sort of surgery to open you up, reattach all the sort of the stomach and then then redo the scar so all the, your belts and things in the army wouldn't be rubbing on you. But, you know, once again, once you go through that, you're almost ready to fill in the tattoo, weren't you, to go from, you know, 18th of June 2013 to, the, to your five-year scan in 2018 Mm. And you'd had that five-year clean bill of health. Your career is going gangbusters. Your relationship's terrific. Everything's wonderful. And then you get a, another batch of bad news. Yeah, I obviously touched on it in my, my episode episode two of this podcast. And to this day, that was still like I've been through some emotional times, but that was definitely one of, if not the most emotional time finding out that bad news of that I had bowel cancer five years after I had testicular cancer, after going through all of that to then have bowel cancer, which was completely unrelated. And so I remember actually uh, letting you know that you know, my bowel was playing up a bit again, kind of almost like five years before the lump of my testicle was kind of five years later saying that I've got my bowels are playing up a bit more and what do you reckon? And anyway, I went off for a colonoscopy and I was just chatting to you about it. Yeah, and, and once again, you think, well, nothing's going to come of that. Plenty of people have colonoscopies. You know, you'll have a little bloody cyst that can be clipped out or, or whatever it is they do. And you really, because of what you'd been through as a parent, you think, well, nothing else is going to happen. This will, this will be fine. And so it goes in and you've you've had the scan and then you've told me, oh, yeah, they're sending it off for tests. And I'm st- you're still kind of not in denial, but you think that'll be fine, Hughes. Everything's going to be, everything will be good. So then when you rang me and said, oh, I've been called back into the doctor's office, even then I'm thinking, look, I'm still being positive about this. He's going to go and be, the the doctor's going to have to do maybe a small operation or do something, or or maybe it's just a, you know, lifestyle adjustment. So part of me is not really concerned that anything bad. And then, you know, within a space of a couple of hours, you've, you've come out and talk about deja vu, you know, you said, oh, dad, you won't believe this. And you're choking up. You're saying I've, I've got bowel cancer. Mm. And, 
and I'm, you know, I'm thinking, what do you mean you got bowel cancer? Because, mm-hmm. you know, being over fifty, I get, you know, the envelope in the in the mail, and you know, uh, you you do your the poo test and send the envelope back, and comes back with a clean bill of health, as it did in my case. And I'm thinking, yeah, bowel cancer—that's an old person. No one, you don't get cancer, at, you know, in the bowel cancer at twenty, you know, twenty six the time. Yeah. You know, and I said, that's just not right. And then what does that mean? And then, as you say, you're in Brisbane, you've got Amber, your partner, girlfriend up there, and the doctor says, oh, we've got to do an operation. And once again, they're very quick. They don't stuff around. These operations are, we're going to do it within a matter of matter of days. And it looks like we can do this particular, you know, subtotal colectomy, whatever it was called, Dugs. And, and every part of you has to be you think positively. You think positive. You think positive. You think positive. You go in. You know, we were, of course, nervous for you. and We were nervous as well. So waiting, waiting, waiting. Amber finally calls. Had the operation. It went well. You don't have a bag. Uh, I've got up there on a Saturday. And the plan was, and you and I were talked about it, the plan was that, you know, I'd had a week off work and uh, we were just going to go back to your place. I was going to work from there and then be the support I can. So I've gone straight from the airport to the hospital, get to the hospital uh, ready for you to be discharged. You've, or at that point, you've had your tubes removed, your bloody um, catheters, etc., and you're sitting up there in your shorts, uh, T-shirt, you know, you've had something to eat, you're ready to be discharged and go home. And I've rocked in with my overnight bag, carry-on bag, and said, well, you know, let's go. And you've just said, oh, Jesus, Dad, I'm just, I'm really going downhill. I'm really feeling rubbish i'm just just not feeling great at all and and i could see the senior nurse her name was sue she was getting worried i could see a look in her eye and she was looking at me and i'm looking at her and this was getting worse and worse and they couldn't get onto your doctor because he's a you know he's having a day off he's he's a cyclist he's out there on a bloody weekend ride with his mates and left a message couldn't get onto him and i looked at sue and she looked at me and i said are you going to call it as in code blue or whatever the and she said, yeah, I am. So she's pressed the button on the buzzer and shit, it's like all hell was breaking loose. Yeah. So she has just taken charge. There's nurses, there's, you know, people running everywhere. She, she at one stage is walking down the, the corridor with two phones to her ear. Uh, this is this is like serious emergency. So thank goodness your, your doctor who's um, had a, having a coffee break on his bike ride has checked his messages. He's called in. And it's like action stations. I mean, he has literally flagged down a motorist and said, I need to get to this hospital. We're there waiting in the uh, pre-operating theatre. He has literally wandered in in his cycling gear, in his full uh, you know, middle-aged mammal in, in Lycra. He looked at me, no time for introductions, while they're prepping you. I'm filling out the form that is saying, waiving the, the liability to the doctor in the hospital in case you die. And he said, this is a serious operation. I've got to get onto it. I cannot waste. He's literally bolted to prep. He said, it should take no more than, you know, about an hour. Yeah. So I have gone back down to the waiting area where your partner Amber is and Amber's parents happen to be there. We're sitting out in the little courtyard coffee area. So an hour goes by and you think, no one said anything. And about an hour and a quarter, hour and 20, you think, oh, probably getting towards being done by now. We should be hearing from someone soon. Two hours goes by. At this stage, you're starting to think, why is it taking so long? Why is nobody calling us? Three hours goes by and we are fucking beside ourselves. We just do not know what to do, how to handle it. So it was three and a quarter hours, the phone rings. It's Amber's phone and it's the doctor. 
He said it was more complicated than he thought. Um, there was a severe twist in, in the bowel because of all the previous scarring from your previous operations. He then arrives down um, stairs about half an hour later. So he's walked out, seen me, taken me inside and said, shit, that was close. He said, I would not have wanted to leave that for another hour or we'd be having a very different conversation. He said, mm. now it's just time. Now we just have to let, he said, the bowel does not like being handled. Uh, he said, I had to physically manhandle it, you know, to get it untwisted. He said, it's a very, he said, it doesn't like being touched. He said, it'll go into a bit of a state of shock and it's going to take a number of days before it comes back to life. The next time we see you, I've never seen anything with so many tubes going in or out. So from memory, you had three different drug pumps going into you that were one each side of the wound in your stomach. And then you had one going into your vein in your arm you had a, a oxygen mask, you had a nasal gastric tube, you had an anal tube that was stitched to your, your poo hole, you had a, a wee catheter, uh, and then you had the big things on your legs that were massaging to stop blood clots. You literally looked like some bizarre science experiment. So to see you like that was like, oh my fucking God. By the time you finally sort of a bit more awake and groggy, realizing you didn't have a bag, that was all fine. Then, then the journey started, Hugo, uh, of just having to try and bring you back once again from that, that recovery, you know, having, you know, this is the fifth time you've been opened up down the stomach, having to bring you back to that positivity. And I suppose that's probably the hardest that I've been through because every day was a bit of a, we were still nervous. And I spoke to the doctor in the corridor outside of your earshot every day, and he'd say, fingers crossed because every day that went by there was no sounds of gurgling or anything like that in your stomach like we all have the more nervous we were getting that it didn't work and that we were going to have to take out the whole stomach so every day went by he'd come in in the morning come in at night you know day one went by day two went by and he wasn't quite sharing how serious that was by the time we got to day two or day three and there was no noise. And I think it was on the evening of day three when I could literally see his eyes pop open. He says, I heard something with his stethoscope on your stomach. I heard something. And then he came back the next morning and he said, I'm hearing more. I'm hearing a lot more mm. now. He said, it's, it's waking up. It's waking up. And then that time I went back to the corridor outside of your earshot and I said, what do you think? He said, yep. He said, I was, he said, I was so nervous. He said, but that, he said, I think, I think we're there. I think we're there now. So yeah. we got you, you the frame out, the walking frame. We've attached not one, but two stands. Um, there were three pumps. It was all the bags, your poo bag, your wee bag, uh, all attached to this. And just to try and get you to walk, it wouldn't have been any more than 20 metres. Mm. you know, up and back to your room. And you were, you were exhausted. You were absolutely fucked when you got back to your room. You kind of, we untatched, you got you back into the bed. There was, I think there was two nurses helping us do that. But I remember, you know, by about day four was probably when you had your first shower rather than a sponge bath. And you probably want to talk uh, how that felt to you. Yeah, well, it, it is. It's hearing you say all that, like, and for the listeners out there, I'm honestly, when I say this, there's lots of that. I generally, the first time I've heard it as well, and I suppose that's because a lot of the time I was in such a dark place that, of course, dad's not going to update me while I'm in there saying, oh, by the way, the surgeon's really worried. So hearing you say all that, you almost had to go through your own separate journey 
through that whole mm. thing. And then you'd have to come into the hospital room and kind of go, happy. Dude, um, happy, happy, happy. But no, so it was a, it, it was a full on time for me, but just listening to you say that I had no idea what it must've been like for you going through that, hearing the doctor say all those things. And I was in such a dark place and really, I didn't really look forward to anything, but the only thing each morning or each day that I really did look forward to and sort of seems insignificant to most listening to it, but it's obviously one of those things that we often take things for granted was when I actually got up and walked to the shower or hobbled to the shower and kind of sat in the shower and just felt that cold water rush over me. And I just had that feeling I'd close my eyes and I just feel that water and for that five minutes or so I was in there, I just forgot I was in hospital. I forgot what I'd just been through. I just felt almost a sense of freedom with that water rushing over me. And it was quite a euphoric feeling uh, experiencing that. And it's, really, it's hard to explain and listening to it. People probably think, well, it's just a shower. What are you talking about? But just having that feeling, um, yeah, it was just was very enlightening, I suppose, during a very difficult and dark time. And it's funny how those small things you really do take for granted. Yeah, well, they, they would do things like, you know, you'd have a sip of water, a sip of iced water, and then I'd go down and get the, the ice block out of the, the kitchen. I'd crumble it up into a thing and let it melt a bit and spoon feed, a, you know, you'd have a little spoon feed of a icy pole. But what they were concerned about is what they call it, aspirate. We finally got that word right. Not aspirate. Um, <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd have the, the gastric tube down, so they would say, well, how much, have you, how much has gone down? And you say, oh, with this, this 400 millilitres of fluid that's gone down, and then you'd feel sick and nauseous, so they'd have to literally aspirate, which means pump out the, the, the nasal tube, and it was basically all the stuff that wasn't going through the bowel. It just yeah. wasn't digesting. So 400 millimetres would go in, and then 400 would come out, So which means nothing, the stomach wasn't working. But by the time the doctor found that little bit of a gurgle, you know, it was like, thank God, because 400 would go in and only 300 would come out. You think, oh, we've got 100 in. That's fantastic. It started to work. Yeah. And so that was a big measurement. You know, what was being aspirated, you know, literally five to 10 times a day, then went to three, then went to two, and then, you know, finally you, you were digesting the soup broth and all these sorts of things. And then when they're walking, you know, every day that was twice a day, it was like, let's go for a walk. You know, we finished up doing laps of the corridor and all the, you know, up and back, up and back and, Remember when we did up and back, up and back the first time, it was like, I know it was a big deal for you, but it was like, for me, it was going, wow. And by this stage, you, you might have only had one pump, not three on you. And it was just day by day by day. And then I remember I, I had to leave, you know, and then we were doing a tag team with your twin brother. Having been through this emergency operation, seeing you literally on the cusp of life and death, see this extraordinarily nervous recovery where you may may potentially have to have your entire stomach removed going through this long process of, of daily almost hourly incremental improvements thank goodness and then to the point where you still weren't great you still had a couple of tubes in you you know amber your dear partner you know we had to be strong we had to be stoic she and i were doing tag teams during the day and then when she'd finally you know i'd come home late in the afternoon take the dogs for a walk she'd say goodnight to you and then she'd arrive home. She would have cried a lot leaving you. You know, we were a very emotional when we were sitting in the couch watching TV at night. So for me to then leave you, have to go back to Adelaide and get on a plane, I was quite, well, grateful that Amber was there with you, but then also to have your twin brother there to sort of take the tag team and then knowing that 
I think it was the day or the day after that that you finally got discharged. The two of you were, in fact, sitting on that couch watching Netflix, talking the random bullshit that you, you guys as twins have talked about your entire life. Yeah. Gave me as a father a huge degree of comfort that saying, yep, the, the road to recovery is well and truly started. Having Amber, my partner, and my mum and my dad obviously being by my side every step of the way and my brother and my sister and extended family, that support is monumental through times like that like to the it, it sounds cliche but you can't do it without it because it's simple that you I couldn't have gone through all of that without the support of say you dad by my side and I just want to ask you dad from a father's perspective or from your perspective over the last sort of five years what has been the hardest part for you as a father watching your son or watching me go through uh, what I went through well, there's nothing, there's nothing easy about it, let's be honest. There's nothing easy about it. The difficult part is the fact that you've got to be there and support you. You know, I know there are times when you feel guilty that you're causing such pain for your family. That in itself, you know, is problematic. But despite everything, Hugo, this journey, I think, has transformed who, who we all are. Certainly, it's transformed who I am as a father and how I how I look at the world and how I honestly believe, you know, in, in so much more to living in the moment that might've been in the past before for you, you know, your career, you know, as I mentioned, senior welfare, welfare officer, no one is more suited to it. The type of person you are has evolved. And, and as a father, you know, I guess I, I can't be more proud of the way that you've handled this incredibly difficult journey and have emerged at the other side as, as such this, this fine young uh, army captain with this incredible career that's unfolding in front of you. So whilst, yes, extraordinarily amounts of pain and, and difficulty, there's also such amazing light and uh, optimism for what the future holds. No, well, thanks, Dad. And, and, having you there by my side every step of the way through some pretty emotional times. It means more than I could ever say in words and, and I love you dearly. And, you know, thanks for coming on the show today and really being so open and, and sharing a unique perspective on what it's like for you and what it's like for a father or a parent having to watch your child go through something like I've been through and hearing your side of the, the story. And it's, uh, it's been really really enlightening for me and no doubt all the listeners out there. Before we do go, like you know that we like to do on, on all our shows, I suppose in the last week, let's finish off. It, has to, it can be small or big, but just some happy news to finish off for the listeners. Well, you know, I, I guess that uh, you, you reach these milestone moments, all these watershed moments in your life, and and uh, I've been something I've been meaning to do for a long, long time. But this week, I bit the bullet and have booked myself for in for a nine day total detox retreat in Koh Samui in Thailand, coming up in May. So uh, of those nine days, seven of them are a, a full fast and lots of uh, meditation, yoga, right down to massages, beach walks. It'll be a wonderful journey, both uh, physically, uh, emotionally and, and spiritually. So uh, I'm very much looking to uh, reset my life on a number of levels. So that's, uh, for me, a real positive to look forward to. Yeah, well, that sounds like it'll be an amazing experience. You know, having a uh, week or so full-on detox in, in Thailand, it will be a no doubt parts be challenging, but pretty rewarding too. So I look forward to, to hearing all about it. So look, we'll finish up there. But thanks again, Dad, for being on the show. It's been an absolute privilege talking to you. 
and no doubt everyone listening out there, you can all see uh, how much of an amazing, amazing person my dad is. So, no, thanks, Dad. Pleasure. Thanks, Hugo. You've been listening to the 25 Stay Alive podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify to get fresh new weekly episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 25 Stay Alive. And feel free to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.